Hello, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. And thank you for checking out the first episode. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun with this so far. And uh, I've got a ton of shows coming up, which is awesome. Um, so you'll basically be able to expect one show a week for the foreseeable future. That is my goal. I want to keep it consistent because I understand that once you get into something, you want more of it. And I'm just as obsessed with podcasts as those of you who are checking this out. So I totally get it. Um, anyways, you can email me at 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on anything, but uh, maybe if you have suggestions about future people to interview and guests we could have on, um, basically I'm down for anything as long as they're obviously interesting to talk to. Or even if they're uninteresting, then we can talk about absolutely nothing and it would be a terrible podcast. So actually on second thought, don't recommend uninteresting people. And you can follow us on Twitter at 100 words podcast. I'd also like to thank my good friend, Chris Hansen for creating the logo for this big ups to Chris. This week, our guest is John Halperin, who has been a fixture in the Southern California music scene for as long as I've been involved. And, uh, he, in the mid nineties, he ran a very, very successful record label called Vegas records that focused on ska and I know some of you probably scoff at that word ska, but clearly it was a very important part of Southern California. A little band called No Doubt you may have heard of. Um, Gwen Stefani will come on the podcast at some point, uh, and we can talk about her early days. And uh, yeah, then he went on to help book a lot of the bands that you know and love at Chain Reaction, which is a very important venue here in Southern California. Uh, some people mention it in the same regards as CBGB's. Um, whether you agree with that or not is completely up to you. And then he currently now books at the Glass House, which is a very reputable venue here in the greater Southern California, Los Angeles, Inland Empire area. And he also has some involvement in the Coachella Music Festival, as well as uh, many other endeavors. The guy is extremely busy, so I was very fortunate enough to sit down with him. A quick note as well. Uh, his dogs were incessant and decided to not leave us alone. We recorded this at uh, his apartment, and uh, so apologies for the lackluster audio at some points. Uh, like I said, the dogs were all over us, so enjoy. So yeah, it's a beautiful day. It's a gorgeous day in Long Beach. Thank you for inviting me over to your penthouse, John. You, you actually would define this as a penthouse, right? It's a, no, a penthouse would be the, the top floor. This is a one-bedroom, upside-down condo in Long Beach, California. <laughs> the only beach city community in California that you avoid the ocean like the plague. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't understand that that don't live in California, that there are beaches that you should not go to. Because people just think of beach and it's like, oh, it's California, it's beautiful. I, I, I mean... If it's someone that's from outside the area or someone from outside the country, I, I mean, it's like the River Thames where, you, you know, you, it, it, it looks nice in right. theory. It's, don't get me wrong. I love Long Beach. And I would not live anywhere else. But it's not like uh, it, it's, it's not like I have ever in 12 years of living here jumped in the water in Long Beach. I need to take a dip. I'm not taking a dip. No. Um, so I have no idea 
where you were born. Where were you like born, raised? Was it always Orange County? I was born in, well, here's what happened, okay? Here's what happened. My, my parents had well, sex. My mom came out from the East Coast to work for Dick Clark. Which is 60s, awesome. In the 60s. And my father was in the military and uh, he followed her out here and then his platoon or whatever deployed for Vietnam. Oh, wow. And this is obviously before cell phones or anything. They had no way to get a hold of him. And here he is driving cross country and ended up like marrying my mom out here. And then he ended up getting in, I guess he got an honorable uh, discharge. discharge. And then um, my mom worked in the entertainment industry here and they ended up getting married. And in 1969, the same year that Sesame Street started, the same year <laughs> that The Gap started, the same year that Woodstock started, the same year that the Manson murders occurred, uh, I was born. I, well, I should also say the same year that they landed on the moon. So I was born in July and within within days of that uh, occurring. Wow. And so you you were actually born in Southern California then? I was born in Los Angeles. Okay. And within uh, a year or so, um, moved to uh, Orange County, and I grew up in Irvine. Oh, okay. At Irvine. That is... In Irvine. I went to school with, um, I went to elementary school, junior high, and first year of high school with, with Zach from Rage. Right, Zach De La Roca. And apparently, uh, who's the guy on Saturday Night Live? Was a couple years older. Will, than Will Ferrell? Will Ferrell went to University High as well, and he was a couple years older. Oh, okay. And um, I would say in, I'm going to say I was into music in elementary school, but in seventh grade, I was in Florida, and I, this is 1981, and I bought, um, I bought the Sex Pistols, never mind the bullets, on cassette tape, and then I discovered Dead Kennedys, and then from there... Uh, madness and the specials and, and I was tape recording Rodney on the Rock every week listening to KUCI which had punk rock um, which what show was on KUCI that was I don't, I don't I don't remember <laughs> he's so that's my dog yeah introduce both of your dogs okay uh, that's Brooklyn the Bulldog and Harlow the St. Bernard I yes. just gave them each the last of the two treats which will fend them for about five minutes. Exactly. These are um, respectively a 60-pound dog and a 120-pound uh, dog. So, um, But anyways, uh, so, so I got into music then and uh, got into punk rock and, and ska and I suppose indie rock or whatever. Did you, how, like, how did that first introduction to you, like, why did you buy that Sex Pistols store? I don't know. I don't remember why. I don't know if it was because I heard it on. I mean, Rodney on the Rock was my Rodney on the Rock and K Rock was my introduction to all this okay. kind of music, like like the Jam and mm -hmm. the Stranglers and all that stuff. Um, I would buy Flipside magazine and I would buy Maxim Rock and Roll magazine. Um, and then I and then it, it it was kind of I suppose it got kind of popular in Irvine as well. And I started you know I bought Chucks and I wore um, jeans. So this is. So this is me. This is me, my freshman year of high school. Oh, that's spectacular. Uh, I'm wearing a homemade exploited T-shirt, suspenders, and jeans with uh, bleach. I actually just framed that like 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 a month ago because it, it just cracked me up. I, I mean, you you, you, you see you the look, flyers. Yeah, you look so specifically early '80s punk. Like that. Right. I mean, it's like atypical. 
Yeah, I look like like I want to be Mike Ness. I think I'm probably wearing a little a little, a little, eye, a little, little guy liner. Eye, yeah, a little a little guy liner. But this is like this isn't screamo. This is like no. rock. This is like <laughs> a little smeared and right. You can see on the background that the suicidal tendencies and the crouch and sure exploited DOA flyers. I, I have all my flyers. I have hundreds of punk rock flyers. Not that I attended really any of these shows, <laughs> but that you that's what you wanted. Right. You wanted this was this was a part of who you were. Growing up, I was really, really into the Clash in junior high, and mm -hmm. my very first concert ever was uh, was Flock of Seagulls. Oh no, 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 no! I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Excuse me. It was, that was not my first. My first was Missing Persons, Bow Wow Wow, and Joe King Carrasco and the Crowns. That was in seventh grade, and I remember walking around and just looking for for uh, people with grown out mohawks, like dudes with grown out mohawks, because that was just too rad. Like that, right. like that was Joe Strummer right there. So where was that um, show at? That was at Irvine Meadows. Okay. Yes. So, um, and then, uh, and then I second concert, let me see, I saw Sparks, I saw X. Um, I think the first like act, like real punk rock show was at the concert factory, which was the cuckoo's nest. They had just changed the name and this was freshman year. So this is about 1983. Mm -hmm. I saw the toy dolls on the uh, dig that group baby, wow. uh, with uh, love canal opening. And I have the, I think I have love canal set list. I don't have, Toy Dolls set list. Sure. That was my first, like, you know, parents dropped me off there. And, and what did, speaking of your parents, like, what did, how did they react to you getting into this stuff? It wasn't, um, it wasn't positive, right. per <laughs> se. Um, did they just, were they just like, hopefully this I is mean, a phase that John gets through? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I wasn't doing drugs. I didn't drink. Uh -huh. But um, I, you know, I, I mean, I was listening to Minor Threat and stuff like that as well. But it's like, but it's, you know, positive stuff as well. Sure. I ended up, um, after one semester at uni, uh, they sent me away to boarding school. To try to... Wow, to try to correct that mistake? Correct, correct this, this up-rockingness. <laughs> um, and then after six months, I came home. And then by then, they had moved to South Orange County. And then I grew up. Uh, I think I got bribed with uh, $100 to go to uh, St. Margaret's, which was a Episcopalian... Okay. High school, which, by the way, I'm Jewish. Right. So, but a hundred bucks got me to go there, and then I wore a uniform every day. So my interest in music continued, but I wasn't really necessarily um, able to express it at school. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. did, I did get kicked off the football team sophomore year <laughs> because I wouldn't cut my hair. You were you were pretty punk then. I mean, like, were you like when your parents were obviously trying to get you out of this? Was it a pretty, you know, like, did you get in a ton of fights? Like, were you pretty rebellious from that standpoint? Or Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I remember, you know, ditching school and going to see Shattered Faith play <laughs> at, uh, at OCC. You know, this is like 83 or something like sure. that. Or, or uh, um, you know, yeah, it was, it was certainly a rebellious punk rock. It wasn't a, uh, oh, hey, you know, flowers and cupcakes and. Sure. Go listen to my music this wasn't. It wasn't just a fashion thing that you were into. This was like you were. And I had friends that were into punk rock, and right. they were getting into trouble as well. I mean, they were more. Some of these people were more like drinking or whatever. Not not really drugs. I didn't mm -hmm. even get introduced to any drugs. I didn't. I, I'd never even smoked. I think in my life I've tried one cigarette just to try it. And I, <laughs> right. This is not my thing. Sure. But uh, it was just more of a rebellious uh, attitude and. I, I was doing fine in school, but it was just more rebellious attitude and just, I don't know. Yeah. Just, 
Are you allowed to cuss? Yeah, of course. Oh, fuck society, you know? Like, yeah. Like, like that. That's, um, do you find it now that obviously since that fashion trend and this culture now, parents are more used to it? Um, or at least just the idea of like, you know, punk in early, the early 80s was something that obviously your parents didn't have any context for. But it's like now that, you know, people like you and I, I mean, like I have a child, like I know what punk is. And so it's like, I always wonder what he's going to do to rebel against me. He's going to be a juggalo. Right. <laughs> Which, but the thing Listen, is. The juggalos are more punk than any punk out there right now. I would they're agree. they're doing their own thing. I would agree. And, and society shuns them. I mean, juggalos yep. the new, is the new punk. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I, I want to know, but see, on that same point, at least you and I have a context for that. Like, we know where it comes from. We know the culture. Where it's like, clearly there's going to be something that's going to come along that we're going to have no concept for why it exists. So similar to like what you're, I mean, your parents sending you away to boarding school. <laughs> your parents sending you away to boarding school was a direct response to the fact that they didn't understand where you were coming from. You know? Right. So I just find that interesting. And it's funny that you had such a... Uh, uh, a forceful upbringing in regards to that, and especially being in the Irvine, heart of Orange County area. That was right, which is probably worse. I mean, I would think that if, um, I mean, we live in California too, so I mean, you you regularly see punk rock parents with kids and indie rock parents with kids, but maybe in middle America, where it's more conservative or conservative right. parts, or maybe even conservative parts of California, <laughs> he's tearing that thing up. You know, with you obviously being into music, like what, what did you want to be like when you grew up? Like, did you want to transition into I, working in music in some way, shape, or form? Or I never had any interest in working in music. Um, I just always loved music, but I never really had any interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I had in high school a subscription to psychology today, okay. and I would read that incessantly. And my whole goal was to go on and go be a, a therapist. Okay, like who could better understand? these kids than someone who is this angry punk rock kid who better to, you know, yeah. to, to relate. You have the proper so context. I, I, um, I, uh, I, I graduated from high school and I, uh, and I went to, uh, Chapman for two years and I transferred to San Jose state and I ended up and I got my bachelor's and then I went on for my master's. Oh, wow. So did you, uh, so you actually, you finished with your master's as well? I had my master's before I was 25. Look at that. Driven. So, and I had intended on going out for my doctorate, but never did. I just ended up, I got a job at the state, and I, mm-hmm. uh, I left to do the, um, uh, the record label, and then, I, and then I, I've been working for the county for uh, 12 years. With the, uh, we'll, we'll get back to the work that you've done with the, uh, with the county. Um, so, that, like you mentioned, the record label, Vegas Records. Am I, I mean, that's that's the one you're speaking of, correct? Yeah. That's okay. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, my own personal introduction to you is obviously through the venue that you booked at, Chain Reaction, which some people try to... Uh, well, tell me if you agree with the label. They call it the West Coast version of CBGB's. I, I think I think there's some that. There's some validity in that. that. I mean, but, but for those for those, for those bands, for sure. I mean, I mean... Not necessarily like the Ramones or whatever, but right. like you take like, like if you're, if you're if you're twenty to thirty years old, then the bands you're listening to were like Thursday or Thrice or, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I booked Mars Volta's first show ever there. Um, 
uh, I mean, for those genres, I, I, all, all the bands started out there, Dashboard Confessional, whatever, Midtown, Newfound Glory. Sure. Um, I booked Fall Out Boy for 50 bucks um, on a Friday night opening for locals. <laughs> opening for locals. Local hardcore bands. Sure, sure. So, um, I mean, so yeah. So, but, but backing up, like, uh, like what happened was, um, I, uh, I, I, I was done with my master's or I was just about to be done with my master's. I got a job in the States and, um, my dad mm -hmm. was working the, the cold war was basically over with at this point. Okay. And your dad is still in the military, right? No, no, no. I'm sorry. Okay. My dad got an honorable discharge. Oh, that's he right. Was, you mentioned he was that. a banking yep. and stuff like that. Yep. So my dad, um, he was in banking, and somehow or other, he got asked to uh, speak in New York uh, on on trade, and okay. he spoke about um, why the U.S. needs Russia more than Russia needs the U.S. for trade, and this is like right at the end of the Cold War. Okay. Um, his speech got reprinted in Pravda, which was at the time the largest newspaper in the entire world. Okay. And so, as a result of that, um, he started. He got Russia contacted him, and he started basically working for Russia. And he had this company where he would sell off um, excess military items to other countries. And so, um, we had someone living in our home who. Uh, we presume was KGB, okay. and he uh, was selling basically selling nuclear arms for Russia to other countries. So wow! So, so you know our phones are tapped. The tapped by the CIA, and I'd come home from school, and the CIA would be hanging out there with my dad because he wants to make sure they want to make sure that my dad's not selling to any countries that were not um, uh, part of who we deemed friendly. Right? right. They want to make sure we're only selling to friendly countries. Sure. And then. The FBI was tapping our phones because when my dad was in banking with that whole savings and loan scandal and all that stuff of like the the uh, of the of the 80s, the mm -hmm. um, well, the uh, the late 80s, early 90s savings and loan stuff. Sure. Um, let me see. That would have been like the early 90s. Uh, my dad was responsible for putting some of those people in their positions, and then they went ahead. They, the whole thing with the loans count happened. So, so, you know, my dad's testifying against the people that he got them the job. Sure. And then, uh, and then you've got the CIA tapping our phones, and quite possibly KGB tapping our phones because they want to make sure my dad's on the up and up. And how, so how did you even? How, how did that even like compute in your brain? Like, was it just sort of like like my mom and dad would just take off and go to Russia and go hang out on Yeltsin's yacht and just go take off and. <laughs> It just sort of that's how that's how life was for you. That's how life was. They were they were looking at at homes in um in in uh in Cyprus, okay. which is the not the city but the country of Cyprus because it's sort of like Switzerland in that it's a neutral it's a neutral territory country and that's okay. where they were looking to live. But um, something happened with the company and basically and I wasn't aware of this at the time, but basically. Um, the Russian people put out a hit on my dad. So, um, what, uh, so, and, and I'm not aware of this, but I guess it happened for like a, like, it was like going out for like a month where like my dad would go and check the car doors before like my mom would go drive or something like that. Right. So, at the third day of my new job working for the States, 
Um, I can't, you know, as my mom called or whatever and said, hey, when are you coming home? And I'm like, I'll, I'm like, okay, I'm on my home in a little bit. I'll, you know, I'll be home later. Right. And, uh, and I, I get home and I'm greeted by the police and uh, my dad had taken cyanide, killed himself, left a note saying oh that, uh, if, you know, if, if he and my mom took off, that they would come after my brother and I, and if we took off, then they'd come after relatives in New York or whatever. So, um, uh, so, you know, my dad took cyanide. Like, like, I mean, basically he, he went out the way that you kind of see spies go out. Like, I mean, people yeah. that obviously. Yeah. And he left a note saying, you know, yeah. and then weird things happen after that. Like our, our house got broken into a couple of times, but nothing was stolen. Right. And then like faxes that he was receiving every day, all of a sudden stopped. Like just weird stuff Jeez. went on after that. So, um, um, and then, um, so I got severely depressed, like like anybody would. Of course. And uh, and then I, you know, I think what I started, um, I was, you know, I was still really, really into music. Right. And uh, I, uh, what were you I, like? I was, what were you doing for? Were you still in school at the time? Or were you doing? For I was. Work? I was done with. Okay. I was just finished with my uh, with grad school. Okay. And um, I was. Uh, working for the state of California. Okay. And I remember I was at Club 369, and it was like six bands for six bucks. It was like the Skeletons and Head P.E., like just the most random band. <laughs> sure. Like so random. And then um, Scott Prezant from Scratch Magazine was walking around handing out the very first issue of Scratch ever. The very first issue, the day it came out. Sure. And then we exchanged. I'm like, oh, this is cool. I'm like, oh, I'd love to write for you one day or whatever. And then we, I, we exchanged numbers because email didn't exist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and I would write for Scratch, and I that and starting working in music is what took me out of that um, depression, and I never went back. Sure, so, sure. And then from there, I had a friend who was working for Fox Motocross that was directing movies. This guy Troy Adamitis. So I. Uh, worked as a music supervisor for Fox Motocross. I got bands like Straight Face and Whitecaps on on VHS cassette, you know, VHS tapes <laughs> of like... Like Fox Racing as in like the motor, like the one, the Fox Racing that exists now? Yeah, like oh, Fox wow. Racing. Okay. Like I was like, this is back before they had a clothing company. Right, right, right. Company. Before they had a lifestyle brand. Exactly. I mean, this is like when it was just strictly like uh, extreme. Right. Of course, the extreme. So right, right. I, I got... Um, you know, I was helping them out with music supervision. My job was just to send them music. That's sure. it. So, uh, so I was doing that for Fox. I was writing for Scratch. I wrote, I wrote a couple articles for Main Street. I did some uh, randomly. I worked for this eight, this talent agency called Bobby Ball, and I would have bands audition for commercials. I remember I had the U.S. Bombs, and this is probably '95. <laughs> that sounds about right. You know, '96. I remember U.S. Bombs auditions. Um, I remember Save Ferris audition, and then Bill Uricci ended up getting in a commercial because of Bill from Save Ferris got a commercial because of the audition. Um, and then, uh, and then from from there, um, I Scott and I were talking. Scott from Scratch, and I'm like, we should do a compilation of half, half punk bands and half ska bands from Orange County because if we do that. Both the Scott kids and the punk kids will buy the compilation. <laughs> like this is a marketing genius. Exactly. Well, not only that. Yeah. I mean, I kind of hand it to us because we didn't really have any money. 
Like, Correct. you know, I'm just like working for the state. Scott was just doing the magazine, which wasn't really making any money. Right. So what we did was we sold advertising inside the booklet. That, and oh, yeah. Like, I, I remember that. Like now, yeah. Lucky 13 and sure. all of and, and I think they're like the only company that's still around. Everyone else is defunct. But we were selling ads for like anywhere from 50 to, I don't know, 300 bucks or something like that. We're like, look, we'll have your ad here for as many issues, as many CDs as we put out. We right. doing, I think, like 10,000 copies of that CD. So the um, that's what paid for it. Yeah, so that, that got you the funding to do the initial pressing. Because I imagine the bands just kind of donated the songs. They donated guys. songs. And, um, actually, though, we... On Punk vs. Scott, we actually paid bands. Okay. Um, we actually paid them the, the royalty rate of whatever it was, like seven cents per sold or nine cents. Per sure, piece. sure. Sold or something like that. So then we, um, um, that was on Scratch Vegas Records. And then after that, I, I wanted to put out this this band, Jeffrey's Fan Club. And Scott Brazil was just sort of like, eh, I don't know. Yeah. You know, he wasn't really too into it. So I'm like, okay, cool. And then, so then I started Vegas Records. And this, and this is, just to put in context for everybody else, like this is the mid-90s where this, the third wave of ska was hitting Orange County in ways that most other people in the country would have no idea what was happening. You know, I mean, obviously you see a band like No Doubt that rose above it and, you know, got a lot of mainstream success. But it was like, that was, I mean, th- that was the scene in the, from like 94 till about, or maybe 93 till about, you know, 97. Or even even a little later. Well, a little I don't know. later, that's yeah. Not that's true. Right. I would say I would say early. I would say two thousand even. Yeah, because, yeah, that's because true. Because bands, you know, whether it be my my boss tones, that's who true. I know they're a little earlier, but you know, obviously, Ruby Fish and Aquabats, and, yeah, 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 and Meal Ticket and um, Pushover and Ocean Eleven and all just <laughs> all that all that stuff. Um, there's so many bands. Do you think? Uh, do you think that that particular scene could have? Hit anywhere else, or do you think it was kind of a perfect storm? No, it could have hit anywhere. Okay, it, it just happened. Anywhere. It just, just happened. happened to it hit. happened here. I mean, it was a. I mean, not that I was. I mean, I booked a couple shows at Al Cappuccino's. I booked like like Ivy League, which was Mad Caddies. I booked like you know my superhero and some other you know bands, Lone Raspberry, to play like a, a coffee shop. I booked three shows ever in the in the late nineties. But uh, I mean, it was a talent buyer's dream. I mean, there's there's no broken noses, no. No broken toilets, like no, no karate kicks, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, just like kids no, no skanking, pit. just, just, just kids going around in a little circle, just, I don't know, right? With their arms Br- brushing into each other, yeah, and then saying sorry. <laughs> so it was great, and then, and you know, still to this day, I mean, that's the more so than anything else. That's the genre of music, not necessarily the third wave ska. More, I, I, I prefer traditional ska. I prefer sixties uh, reggae, but sure, but uh. But that's yeah. what you always go back to musically. Yeah, yeah. That's what I go. I mean, you could, if you want, later on, you could look at my record collection and see what I'm, what I'm. <laughs> what your girl is. Although, although Ice Cube uh, is is on the turntable. I think no, no judgments. Um, but uh, but yeah, and then and then and then I and that's when I started Vegas Records. I did that for a couple years. And was that at that point that was kind of your full time gig, or you were still? It doing... was my full time okay. gig. I made it my full time gig for two years, which was the hardest two years of my of my life financially. Sure. But it was. Did you get office space and everything too? I rented uh, a closet, literally a closet, over <laughs> at Milano. So yeah, so I, I I wasn't working a day job, but I, I was doing. I mean, I, it was pretty cool though. I mean, I got I went to Europe twice with Jeffrey's Fan Club, and. Uh, 
And, uh, and then I, I did it for two years without a day job, but a year into it, I, uh, I, I applied with the county mm. of, of Los Angeles uh, to be a social worker. And, um, and after two years of not having a day job, I started with the county. And probably a month before that, I went to go see Melee at Public Storage, which had just turned into Chain Reaction. And the other talent buyer had just quit, Aaron Christopher. And uh, Tim was like, hey, uh, do you, uh, do you, you know, would you want to do it? I'm like, yeah. Yeah. So he's like, Tim, okay, Tim, Tim being the owner Sorry. of Chain Reaction. It's fine. Yeah. The just put it in context. And, uh, and I'm like, yeah, sure. And then literally uh, within a couple of days, I started I started booking that place. And I, I like I said, I only booked three shows before. I had no I know. Why, why did, why did Tim was like, you're. You seem reasonable enough. You can do this. You know, I was coming around a lot. And okay. He knew me, and he knew I was in the music industry, and he called some references. Oh, he got called it. like Vince Pileggi uh, from Milano, and he, he thought about it. And it worked out really well because I actually kind of knew the bands, and I was into music, and sure, I got bands to play there that that had never played there before. That, um, and I, well, you did you had to kind of lay the foundation for this place in order for bands to want to play there because like it's not easy to start a venue <laughs> yeah i mean it was going on i mean it wasn't like i mean back then it was like a, you know a couple shows a week or whatever and obviously it became seven shows a week right um but um but certainly rob martinez had already laid that foundation i mean sure. the shows that were doing well there were rob martinez shows ron from fall space booking yeah obviously from final conflict um i mean he was he was the man so i mean if he sure. was booking that place full time Maybe it wouldn't have had, you know, indie rock or ska, but he, I mean, if there was a refuse show there, or there was a refuse show there that right. canceled, I mean, he's the one who was responsible for it. Sure, sure. Um, so, but anyways, what I, I, I got to bring in just another element, and then sort of, you know, Rob was still doing other stuff on the side, like his booking agency, so it kind of, you know, I kind of went in there a little, you know, a little more full-time. Sure. And, and, and managed the venue, and then full-time talent buyer and I did that from 2000 2006 mm. um, and then I I left to go book a small room uh, at the glass house which they were building called Kitron and uh, oh yeah I forgot about that I, and then <laughs> Kitron was never built and in the meantime the talent buyer there left to go book the belly up and so I became the talent buyer in 2006 at the glass house and that's where I've been for the last six years yeah with the um what what parts of like the talent buying process that you know do you enjoy the most, and what are the ones that are like a total grind? I mean that you're just like I hate I hate doing this aspect of it, but obviously this balances it out. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what do I? I mean, it's um, it's I mean, I mean, it, the, a, a simple answer is the agents. No, no, I actually <laughs> no, that's not true. I actually really like. I really like the booking agents. Sure. It's more so like, um, you know, offering sellout money for a show and getting, getting beat up on the offer, meaning that they're getting more money out of me if it's a guarantee. Sure. And then the show doesn't, um, doesn't do well. And, and, you know, the glass house is, is not part of, um, we're not part of golden voice. We're not part of AG. People assume that we are, right. but we're not, we're, we're a hundred percent independent. So if we do a show that loses, then we all feel it for, we have to recoup that and pay sure. our bills. And, and so it's, uh, it's really rough booking an 800 cap room with no booze. Um, there's just no, you know, the, the bands are getting the same money to get where places do have booze. Right. So we don't have that extra cushion 
of, a, of another way of us making money. So right. that's the only real hard part. But um, but with time, you, you sort of a you get to know the agents and you get to trust the agents and sure. b um, you know a good talent buyer will certainly know will certainly do their research on a band and go back and forth and yeah, know much how they work right right. How does the conversation with the agent go like the following day where it's like, you know, he calls and get totals and you're like, hey, so about that. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it might be even before that. I mean, yeah. you know, I'll bring it up to the agent and say, look, this is, you know, how it's looking and, sure. and what, you know, is there anything we can do about this? Um, you know, and, and it, it just talk to him. Otherwise, after the show's done, there's no. Yeah, there's no going back. There's, there's no going back once ever from an agency did they say i mean hey we're really sorry you guys lost money and actually gave us some money back but otherwise i'll be honest it's sort of the onus of responsibility is on us to talk to the agent first beforehand it's not their responsibility and at the end of the day we're the ones who made the offer so it's really on us sure you gotta live with it right if we offer uh ten thousand dollars to a band and they don't you know i mean it it was you know i it I like to think of it as a collaborative effort, but at the end of the day, it's really on us. Right, sure. No, I get that. Um, and then on the side, like you were mentioning that you had applied for a job in the state, um, and you've been a social worker. Well, I work for the county. You work for the county, sorry. sorry. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a dependency investigator, so I, I investigate uh, child abuse, and I'm the one who writes reports for courts, making the recommendation of what we should do. Mm-hmm. The case. <laughs> Sorry, his dogs are completely slobbering over every inch of John, his phone, his computer. This is amazing. Um, <clears throat> so, how that aspect of you know your life? How does that reward you? Where it's like you know, is it, is it basically just the fact that obviously you can help these kids, you know, kind of file through the system, so to speak? It's my my job. I mean, I was a services social worker for a mm-hmm. decade, and that would have been. More my role. My role would have been to either reunify, reunify the kids with the parents. Sure. Um, and if not, then um, then to find permanence for these kids. Sure. But um, you know, my role now is to investigate. Okay. And I have a case for a shorter period of time. Got it. And I do interviews with everyone and get to the bottom of what really happened. Make a recommendation to court as far as what 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 they should you know what we should do with the case and then ultimately it's the 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 court and the judge that will decide got it got it the um and then you another sitting here in your living room another one of your hobbies and passions is clearly art anyone that has ever met you in any capacity probably knows that you are uh dare say obsessed i i mean i'd say I mean, art hoarder, art addict. Right. Like you know, I don't, I don't drove. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't smoke. Sure. I don't. I don't. This drink. is your vice. I don't do drugs. I mean, this is my my heroin. But you know, I, I mean, it's it's not a complete obsession in that I don't. I mean, that's not true. I'll obsess on something, but I may not necessarily act on it. Okay. And I don't put myself into severe, severe debt and right. whatnot. It's like I'm not going to sit there and. I, I mean. I'd be lying if I didn't say I didn't. I didn't borrow against my condo to buy a piece of art. I'd be lying if I didn't say that. <laughs> right. But it's not like I'm. It's not like I'm like a four hundred dollar a day addict. Sure. You know, uh, stealing to pay for this addiction. I just, 
I like my colorful walls. Um, right. And you and you're at the point now where if you purchase a piece of art, you have to really consider where it's going to go in your home and what you need to take down. I mean, I, it's Tetris as far as moving everything around. <laughs> and there are literally, you can look to your left and you'll see two uh, vintage Holly Hobby pieces that my friend bought my fiance Julia to put up on the walls. And I have to locate a place for that. And then you'll look further to the left and you'll see there's seven or eight framed uh, animation cells I bought recently that I have to figure out where am I going to put these things? And what, either what's going to come down, or am I going to, you know, which is why stuff has started to go out in the hallway and whatnot. Sure, sure. Yeah, you have an overflow space. Um, kind of reflecting on a lot of your work that you've done with, you know, bands, and obviously like the talent buying process. Like here in 2012, if you're a 15 or 16 year old kid, you know, what sort of advice do you give them in order to sort of, you know, like get to play at venues like Chain Reaction and that type of stuff? You know, like what, what, what do you think the best avenue for them to pursue is? I mean, my advice really isn't different than what I would advise bands five years ago or ten years ago, which is, um, is, is work your band. I mean, you can work your band on, online, and that's great. But then, like, if you're, I mean, when I was a chain, if there was a band that was flyering for shows at, at other venues, and they're at my place all the time flyering, why wouldn't I want that band to be? Yeah, at, they, they you know, work at my venue because if they're going to work that hard for that show, they're going to work just as hard, if not harder, for my show as well. <laughs> sure. So you so, see, the the work that the, that a person does offline is obviously clearly just as important as whatever they do online, if not more. I, I I think so. I think so. I mean, we still do hard flyers. I mean, obviously, we do all our Facebook stuff, and, and sure, you've got your Tumblr and your Twitter, your and all social that networking. Yeah. But you know, we still make you know, Glasshouse still does paper flyers and goes that route as well. Yeah. So I that. You know, my advice to that band is, is you work it, and 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 honestly, if if you be realistic, I mean, if you're a band that is drawing twenty people, then really, I don't know, do you play a four hundred cap room? I mean, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna go there and open up for the Secret Rice show. It's just not gonna happen. I mean, you know, those bands are gonna choose their friends to play them, but the venue doesn't necessarily get to choose. And when the venue does get to choose. You're going to pick a band that's going to do the business because if the band, if, if the venue is choosing a band to open up a show, it's because the show's not doing great or it needs local support. Right. It need, it needs that additional help. <laughs> yeah, it's it's because the band, it's because the, the the show needs some help, and so otherwise the agent would just add their own bands on there, bands that they want to hook up. So, um, you know, it's not like you know, and, and if you see a, a show at a big venue and it doesn't have support. It's just because we don't have the support yet. It's not because we're looking for support. I mean, if you see a sold-out Snow Patrol show or a sold-out, like, whatever, like Arctic Monkey show or whatever, I can't add support on there just I, I, because there's only one opening band. It's because the agent and the manager they've have chosen, chosen that to be, the, yeah. it to be a two-band bill, and that's just sort of how it works, or a sure. three-band bill or whatever. So, I mean, I appreciate your... You, you trying, but the truth is that it's just not going to happen. I mean, you got to, you know, to get on bills like that, you're going to be booked by a booking agent. If you book by a booking agent, I mean, you might be a really, really, really good band, 
but you should also have some sort of draw as well. And if you don't have a draw, then you need to be working something a little bit different to get that draw. Right. I mean, and, 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 you know, I mean, if you want to play a show in a 400-cap room or smaller, and if you're a really young band and no one's ever heard of you, and I'm not, I'm not talking about any of your bands. Obviously, you're older and you're, you're well surpassed this point. But if you're in a young band, if you're 16 years old and you're in a band, I mean, I would contact the venue and without even saying anything, say, look, we can draw this many people. And if you don't believe me, I'll buy the tickets right now and prove it. And then it's not really a pay-to-play because you're going to say, look, we can draw 50 people and right. here's proof. I mean, and if you can't draw 50 people, then maybe you really should be opening that, that place. Maybe you should play a smaller room sure. until you can. And if you're not building your band, if you're not drawing anyone, then maybe you need to work on your songs. Right. I mean, I'm just being yeah. honest. No, like, for sure. I mean, if you're working your stuff and no one really seems to care, then you're just playing, There's a reason. For, you're just playing for your girlfriends or boyfriends and for a couple of your relatives. And that's it. And you're fine with that. Cool. But otherwise... Go back and, and work on your songwriting and or your sound or whatever. Yeah. And there then, there are bigger problems at hand. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and then and if you're building and if you you know, play wherever you can and if you're building, you know, I wouldn't necessarily just do pay to play. I would be the one to offer. That way you're the you're the one in power. Yeah. That's you're a good point. I've never I never really thought about it from that perspective. And then once you draw the fifty people the first time, then the venue is, I mean, if you do it the first time, you can, you know, then you're done. You can be just like, hey, look, see, I told you, we draw 50 people. No right. Problem. Yeah, you, like you said, you want to be in a position of power, so, yeah. But if I haven't heard of your band, it's 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 tough for us to take that chance because we've got guarantees, we've got expenses we got to pay, and so it's hard for us to, um, to take that chance. I mean, we sort of, you know, talent buyers, you know, we, we can be lazy. We want to go with what's already been proven. Sure. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to take huge risks that will obviously leave you in that vulnerable position like what you were talking about earlier. It's, yeah. Like it's if, no fun. Yeah, I mean, if, if, we, if I have a band that's opening, if they draw five people, and I was really hoping they would draw 50 or 75 people to help out with, these, with this touring band who actually does need the money, you know, to pay for gas and hotel or whatever, then, then sure. I mean, we're also an 800-cap room. We're not, you know, we're, we're not a 200-cap room. We are a larger room. Right. And, you know, it looks really bad, too, if there's only a couple hundred people there. <laughs> no one wants to play in that room when it's that when it's half empty. Well, actually, when it's half empty, it's not so bad. If it's 400, it's not so bad. If there's 150, 200 people, you can really tell. If there's 400 people there, everyone's crammed to the front. It actually doesn't. It's, it's yeah, not it's not. So it, that's true. That's true. You know, I've worked all but two Coachellas, but this year I have a new gig. I'm, I'm coordinating content for the boutique. So, oh, whoa. Um, what is Yeah, describe that. So, basically, I've... I've I'm putting together some collaborations. I'm working with companies like Toddland. Uh, sorry, Toddland. I'm working with um, Park La Femme, which is uh, Paul Frank, the, the person, not mm -hmm. the company. Paul Frank, the person. Um, his new company, Park La Femme. And um, putting together different items for sale at Coachella that you can't find anywhere else in the world. Oh, wow. That's and, cool. Uh, are they like pieces of art that you're that are being created? or Like, um, like we're doing like a... Uh, uh, like a coin purse with Park La Fun, Paul Frank's company. We're doing um, like flip flops with Todd Land. Oh, cool! Um, we we have T-shirts that artists have done. Um, we're um, we're doing uh, with Fearless. We we did a, uh, a, a alternate colorway of Via by At the Drive-In, right? Which will only be available at Coachella. Um, 
and just stuff like that. I, I worked um, I worked with the uh, with the uh, graphic artist Eduardo. Um, we worked together on, on designing the boutique a little bit, uh, along with our bosses and stuff. As far as like up, you know, we grab like you know a table and interesting lighting and stuff. Sure, like that. Sure, sure. That's cool. So basically, it's just it's a storefront where people can buy really unique items that are only located at Coachella. I mean, Coachella, you know, with it being sold out and it's, you know, 20,000 people camping. It's like, it's like its own community. Yeah. So we're doing live painting as well. And, um, like on May 12th, we're doing an art auction of the artists who are doing live painting in the boutique, uh, in Palm Springs at, at, uh, the shag store. Oh, nice. And so like the pieces will start super cheap and the auction is going to go to benefit this company races or this nonprofit races that's out there. We wanted to do the auction out in um, Palm Springs area to benefit a charity in the Palm Springs area. Yeah, Since sure. That's where Coachella's To based. give it all that's back. Who, that's what we want to do is give back to those guys. That's awesome. So, yeah, so that's that's probably the latest thing that I'm doing in addition to everything else. Right. Uh, you're, you're, not, you're not a very busy man, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Especially maintaining these two dogs eating habits, especially after today. Well, they'd be fine. If you weren't here, I they'd know. just be sleeping. But because you're here, basically it's my fault. I apologize. I'm sorry they, that they, you had they, to feed all they the They don't treats. want. They don't want to share my attention. Attention with Ray Harkins of Taken and Makoto. I, I understand completely. Well, I apologize, dogs, and I'll be at your care soon. But thank you, John. I appreciate it. No problem. Yay!